Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. And once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show this evening. Uh, tonight is, of course, March the 2nd, and you know what that means. That means we're bringing back Coach's Corner, uh, starting it up again this season. Uh, so we'll be going to the full two-hour broadcast tonight. Uh, first hour, of course, will be the Coach's Corner panel uh, discussion. And then a little bit later on in the second half, I'll be joined by my special guest, who happens to be a uh, returning guest, actually Charlie Meacham, Jr. He was the former LPJ commissioner as well as the author of the book Arnie and Jack. And he's going to come on and talk about, uh, share some great stories about the two gentlemen, of course, uh, out of his book. Uh, and then he's also going to share some additional news, I believe, about the book. So we'll uh, look forward to that. Um, always uh, excited to have uh, doing this broadcast live. It always makes it fun and interesting. Uh, a little bit of a program change tonight, though. As I mentioned, we are going to do Coach's Corner, but one of the panelists, unfortunately, uh, had to uh, withdraw this evening, a little under the weather. So, uh, Jamie, we wish you well and hope that you feel a little bit better, and we'll see you the next time. Uh, but I'm joined by my good buddy and friend, John Decker. He's going to be coming on here, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. But remember, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And the best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash live. And during the live broadcast, we'll be front and center. But if you aren't able to tune in live and you need to uh, find out uh, a little bit about the shows, you can just scroll down to the on-demand section, and you can listen to any of the previously aired shows, including tonight. Uh, the recorded version in their entirety when it's convenient for you. So uh, love for you uh, to join us live, but if you can't, uh, other great ways, and you'll hear about those at the end of the show, uh, other great ways that you can listen to the broadcast as well. All right, as I mentioned, we're going to be starting up with Coach's Corner tonight. My good friend John Decker is here, and uh, he is the uh, Director of Instruction at the Medallion Club in Columbus, Ohio. He's also a senior editor in Topps Magazine. Uh, he was a former head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando and was the 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year, and he is an author of a great book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which is available in um, a hard uh, print version and also in as an audio book, and he'll explain that a little bit later on, and it also includes an accompanying Bible study, uh, and he also does public speaking as well, so you want to reach out to him after the show maybe and uh, have something set up, and he'll be happy to come and speak to your group. So, on that note, please welcome uh, tonight's uh, special guest panelist on the Coach's Corner panel uh, discussion, my good friend, John Decker. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to uh, another great season, uh, and uh, con- you know, congratulations on another uh, year getting started with, your, with the Coach's Corner. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's, uh, 
hard to believe, but uh, season 11. Uh, hard to believe that we're in season 11 with the show. Uh, Coach's Corner, I believe, started the second season, um, if I'm not mistaken. So I believe it's 10 years for coaches. I'll have to go back and check, but I believe it's 10, 9 for sure. Uh, but I believe it was 10 when I started the Coach's Corner segment. So, yeah, we've been we've been talking a lot, you and I and many of the others on the panel yeah. for, for the last several several years, and we're going to keep doing the same. So, so John, I picked up – I actually uh, talked about what we're going to talk about tonight on my other show uh, a little bit with Cindy and one of the guests, uh, and it was from a recent article, uh, funny enough, of Golf Tips Magazine, and it was an article uh, – actually, it was the feature article in the last issue, the March-April issue that I put together uh, entitled Master Your Game, Becoming the Best Player You Can Be. And the goal really here with Coach's Corner is to really help build – uh, for the listeners, a solid foundation uh, in their golf game as they prepare, particularly for those that are getting ready to start a new season. Um, we want to give you the tools and, and some of the things that you can do to help your game. And there's th- really three components, three key areas uh, of your game that you really need to understand. And you certainly may not master them, but you need to certainly improve upon them. Uh, the one we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to start things off because I'm going to actually spread this out over uh, the next few uh, shows uh, in the Coach's Corner panel. But tonight we're going to uh, talk about the physical abilities. So um, tonight we're, we're going to discuss some of the areas that one can improve their playing ability. Uh, and there's just really a few key points here uh, and some examples. And then obviously, John, I'm going to get you to give some examples as well. So we want to be real um, particular about that we don't sort of jump ahead on, on this discussion because it's very easy to do that. So I'm going to be very specific in what we're going to talk about and then I'm going to give some thoughts, and then, John, I want you to uh, respond and give your thoughts and input to the discussion. So here we go. So the first one is let's, again, let's tackle the physical ability first. So typically, um, and I'm referring to the audience here, of course, typically you, you work on the fundamentals of your game uh, with a few certain key shots uh, added to the bag. However, there is more to improving the physical game than just working on the status quo. So there's some examples we're going to talk about um, that will really help sort of tighten up your game. I'm often asked, and I'm sure, John, you are, is why can't I take my range game to the golf course? This is one that really a lot of people are stumped with. Uh, And the answer is yes, uh, but the average player sort of fails to participate with any sort of purpose. So, uh, and is ill-prepared to handle sort of real-life situations. So um, I'm going to just give a couple of points here, and then, John, I'm going to let you pick up the discussion uh, as we move forward. So the first one is really how to prepare for that transition from range to first tee. So first you want to, I think it's important that you pick a target on the range and visualize hitting there with your, whether it be with your driver, as an example, if you're, uh, that's the club you're particularly working on. Um, there's other components that we're going to talk about here as well, but that's a good one. If you if you pull the driver out of the bag, you want to sort of visualize um, maybe with the first tee, if you played that course before. So you want to imagine the shape of the fairway and hit the shot required, whether it be a fade or a draw or, even just uh, you know a straight shot, whatever the the, the uh, shot is called for, um, and then you certainly want to look for a flag that mimics your approach to the green and play that shot as your next shot. Uh, and you want to do this for, uh, as an example, uh, a par five, a par four, and a par three. So you want to really get engage your imagination here. So I want to maybe uh, that was very specific, very uh, again a, a bit of a generalization maybe you can dial down a little bit more on some other things that you want them to do when they're working on the range. And this is not necessarily a warm-up. It could be. Um, so you can certainly do both if you want, John. But um, 
if they're getting ready to play that day, it's more than likely going to be a warm-up session that they want to get ready to play for that day. How do we help them transition from range to the first tee? Well, Ted, this is uh, probably one of the most common things that I hear from students. Uh, and this is something that I struggle with at times. I think, I think all players do. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times right. you'll be on the driving range and you're hitting the ball fantastic, uh, and then you go to the golf course and you play poorly. And then there's days that you're on the driving range and you don't seem to be able to put the club on the ball, and then you go on the golf course and you seem to, for some reason, play play better. I love what you were talking about in, in playing, practicing, you know, like the holes that you're going to be hitting out on the course. If there's a particular hole maybe that gives you trouble or maybe you know your, you know, the first hole and you, and you want to kind of practice, you know, uh, making, uh, you know, the swing that you need to get the ball in play. I mean, those are things that are very important. You said something, though, that's also, I think, the most important and the biggest mistake that people make when, when they go to the driving range is they don't pick out a target. And so, so many mm-hmm. times when I'm working with a student, um, I'll walk up to them. Maybe they've already hit 20 or 30 shots before the lesson. I walk up and, and I kind of look at their divots or if they've made divots and, and I say, well, where's your target? And they'll say something to the effect of, well, I didn't pick a target. I'm just loosening up. And I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, I really feel like that when you get to the driving range, even if you're loosening up, um, you know, you're coming out in the spring and it's your first round of the year. It's good to put an alignment stick down or the board maybe that your driving range provides, something to help you, and it can just simply be a club. Lay a club down. Picking a target is is very important because what happens uh, so often is we get off in our fundamentals in ball position and grip and distance from the ball. And so often a, a lot of the problems that we have on the golf course are not really the swing issues. They're more issues in the setup. And so by mm-hmm. it, it, uh, you cannot set up properly to any shot without a target because your target uh, is going to determine your, your target line. It's going to determine your parallel, your body being parallel to that. It's going to re- determine your right angle, which is going to be your ball position. And it's going to help, um, you know, it, it could even affect your with your stance, depending on what time, time of shot you're trying to hit. So, it's it's very important that you stick to the fundamentals um, of the of the setup, so that when you go out on the golf course, it, it should be second nature to where you're going to you know and you can set up you know every time. And then I would also add to that is making sure that you're also practicing and working on your pre-shot routine. If you think about it, if you give me a hundred balls and I just start hitting shots eventually I'm going to start hitting some good shots. It may be on the first ball. It may be on the 20th ball. But eventually I'll get into a kind of a rhythm and I start hitting shots. Well, on the golf course, I don't get to do that. I get one shot and i got to go play it whether it's good or bad. So taking time after between shots to kind of go through your pre-shot routine, you don't have to do it on every single shot, but every three or four shots you need to back away from the ball, pick your target again, and kind of go through that routine and, that, and just kind of reset and the more you do that, the easier it's going to be for the average player and for even the better player to take what they're doing on the golf course and be able to go on the golf course and apply it. Yeah, well said. Um, you know, there's really two uh, two opportunities here. Um, you know, obviously, this is a, again more of a warm up and a, and a preparatory situation when you're when you're actually playing. If you're not playing that day and it's just to work on certain things, 
that's when you work on your fundamentals. That's when you work on many any changes that you and your coach may be working through. You don't, definitely don't want to do that when you're getting ready to play because that that's going to just throw a monkey wrench in whatever. So to sort of to wrap this up in a nice little bow, um, you want to change the way that you're practicing your pre-round warm-up by visualizing the course and the shape of the fairway and different shots that you know you're going to be faced with. You've never played that course before. Here's a good suggestion. You've got the scorecard with you. Take a look at some of the holes. Notice the dog legs. Look at um, the distances that you might be faced with on a par three. Target it doesn't necessarily have to have a flag on it, but put, um, you know, nowadays people have a lot of range finders and things like that. Or you, if you've been practicing with any length of, of timing, you have a, an idea of how far you're hitting your clubs. So if you know that you're hitting a certain club a certain distance and that may be a hole that you're going to be faced with, then you want to pick a target that generally is going to be in that area uh, and distance, as I mean, and you want to work on those things uh, and, and just as a warm up and, and preparatory for when you actually get to the first tee. Um, because the, the last thing you want to do is to sort of monkeying around uh, with your swing at that point. Now, again, in a warm up, that's when you just want to sort of, again, uh, stretch a little bit, maybe, uh, you know, get loose and you want to practice some of those shots you might be faced with. Um, if it's not a, 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 you know, when you're not getting ready to play in that first uh, tee and it's just to, to work on some things, then you can get you can dial in on some more specific things. But you definitely don't want to mix the two uh, on a day that you're playing. You just want to get ready, loose, and you want to just work on uh, some of the holes or potential holes that you might be faced with by hitting some real-life shots. And I think you're going to find your transition from that range to first tee is going to be far more successful than just sort of going out there and raking and hitting balls. So um, we'll move on to the next one. And this is one um, that I guarantee a lot of people, um, certainly players that are not low handicap players will not do firm believer in practicing shots that you'll be faced with, um, but never prepare for. Um, I'm going to give an example in a, in a minute, but I'm going to let you start this one with maybe uh, one or two of your own examples. We see people practicing uh, shots that they typically are comfortable with, but they don't prepare for shots that every once in a while you get faced with that are uncommon, maybe difficult. There's a little more strategy involved. Maybe you can give us one or two examples of, of yours, and I'm going to give you one of mine uh, here, John, uh, for the listeners, just to get an idea what we're talking about. Well, I agree, Ted. One of the big mistakes that I see – uh, students make is is they'll go out on the golf or on the driving range and they'll pull out a club and they'll just start making a lot of full swings um, and um, you know if you think about it if I'm hitting a six iron or a five iron or a seven iron on the driving range and I make a full swing I might only get that shot a few times in a round of golf if I'm playing 18 holes but um, what what I like to to have my students do and what I like to do myself is I like to hit shots that I might, uh, you know, have to hit on the course. For example, I might have to punch out under some trees. So when I'm warming mm -hmm. up, take out an eight or nine iron and just hit some little, like, long chip shots that just kind of punch shots. You know, just a, it's a good way to kind of start out. You're, you're not trying to hit the ball very far. You certainly are not trying to hit the ball high in the air. It's a good way to kind of loosen up, especially if it's a cool morning or something like that. And you kind of gradually increase the swing and just kind of go from really small shots to medium shots to full shots. I like to hit a lot of wedges um, that are like 
three-quarter distance. So, for example, if I have a, a club that I hit 100 yards, I, I like to try to hit that club 75 yards. So what the, mm-hmm. the reason for that is, um, I, you know, when I'm doing that, I'm obviously going to have to make a smaller swing. I'm going to lower my ball flight. But there's going to be times on the golf course when I want to lower my ball flight if I'm hitting into the breeze or if I've got to go under a tree limb or something like that. So those are two of my shots that, <clears throat> excuse me, I try to do every time I go to the driving range because I like to hit the low shots and then I'll go into more of the full shots. Yeah, and those are great examples, John, because, uh, again, most people are going to the range, you know, whether it's a, a, a practice session, a proper practice session, or to warm up. And, you know, you certainly want to practice, as we mentioned a, a few moments ago, uh, to prepare for that transition uh, from the range to the tee, um, some of your standard shots that you might be faced with. But I think it's a good idea to, th- to mix in there, too, uh, and especially in a, in a full practice session when you're not playing that day, you definitely want to work on some of these shots. And the one I picked, and this is the one I, I put in the magazine, um, and, and that is the bunker shot where uh, the ball is below your feet. Now, there are really two options here, and I, I recommend you practice both versions of this. One, you might actually have to be, get into the bunker. It might be a, a bunker that sort of slopes quite a bit, and maybe the ball has landed, and you the only way to get to it is you've got to be above, but you're actually still in the bunker. So obviously you still need to be able to, again, I'm referring to a greenside bunker in this particular case, but um, so you still have to dig your feet in a little bit into the sand to, to make sure you've got a stable base. Uh, but you want to work on this because this is a shot you're going to be faced with. If you're hitting into bunkers, you're not always going to get, trust me, you're not always going to get a perfect lie. The other one is where the ball has, again, come into the bunker, but maybe it's close to the edge. Uh, it might be the side of the bunker, and now your feet are outside of the bunker. So um, you've got to sort of put yourself in a proper position. I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. So this particular case, you can't get into the bunker because the ball is very close to the edge. Um, maybe it's, you know, six inches away, so there's no room for you to stand into the bunker to address this shot. So now your feet are outside on the grass. So you can't dig in. More often than not, depending on the severity uh, uh, slope, if you will, you've got to sort of lower your center of gravity. So you're still taking your same stance as you would if in your bunker. The difference is you're going to put more flex in your knees. You're going to actually sort of scooch yourself down. I know you can't see this. Um, but if you look at uh, the latest issue of Golf Tips magazine at the newsstands um, and look at the March-April issue, you'll see exactly there's some good uh, pictures in there to show you what I'm talking about. So you want to be able to lower that center of gravity down, number one, uh, so you can reach the ball. And then what you don't want to do is you don't necessarily have to open up like you would for a typical greenside bunker. You don't have to open the club face very much, very slightly, because you, you're really going to take a very steep angle of attack, and you need to be able to dig a little bit in you don't want to bounce off uh, too much. So you need to get into the sand. So you open it a little bit, but not as much. And really the optimum shot here is you want to just get the ball out and get it onto the green, which you really want to do with any bunker shot. Um, but the other thing, too, is what you want to be careful of because you are sort of lowering your center of gravity is on your follow-through, you're not going to be able to follow through as much. Otherwise, you're going to lose balance and you're going to stand up in the shot. So three points, remember, lower your center of gravity, open the club face just slightly uh, so that you're still digging down a little bit and able to get the ball out and just sort of an abbreviated follow-through. So you want to make sure it's enough to get the ball out, but not so much that you're going to lose balance or you're going to stand up out of the shot. So that's the one that I picked uh, for a shot that you're not going to be faced with very often, 
but you definitely need to prepare for. Um, any others, John, that you can think of that are, are common that maybe uh, we might want to throw in here or, or you good? Yes, uh, I think, you know, any uneven lie that you can work on, I think, is, is paramount because, you know, you only are going to get 18 perfect lies in golf uh, when it comes to the full shots. And so, um, you know, I, a lot of times um, I, I've gone, if you can find an area around your driving range where you can put yourself on a downhill lie or an uphill lie um, or a ball above your feet, ball below your feet, um, I think that's important. And that's not always practical when you're getting ready to go out and play because, you know, maybe the driving range area will restrict you to where you can't do that and certainly don't want to go out in front where you're going to get hit. But but mm-hmm. if, in your practice sessions, I feel like uneven lies are one of the least taught and least uh, um, practiced uh, parts of the game. And, and really, um, unless you're playing on a golf course that's extremely flat, Every shot you hit is going to be off an uneven lie. And understanding two things about uneven lies for all the listeners out there. Number one is you need to know your predominant ball flight. So, for example, if you predominantly play a fade, okay, a ball for a right-handed golfer that's going from left to right, okay, you you need to understand that when the ball is below your feet, like what Ted was talking about with what you were talking about, Ted, uh, where the ball is, uh, you know, below your feet in the bunker. Well, if you're doing that off a off a fairway and the ball is below your feet and you already play a fade, now your fade is going to turn into a slice. So you need mm-hmm. to you need to adjust in your alignment. You need to adjust in your course management. Uh, you're not going to probably hit a really long shot, you know, especially if you got to go over water or there's trouble to the right. You may want to consider laying up or playing more to the left. Uh, in that situation, um, if you have, if you're a golfer who um, who fades the ball and the ball is above your feet, you're not going to hit that fade any longer. You may actually hit a slight pull to the left, or you may hit a straight shot. The the ball above your feet is going to actually counter that uh, left to right ball flight, and it's going to tend to make your ball go straighter. So when you're court, when you're picking your target, you know you you in that situation, you you are going to hit. Uh, m- most likely a more solid shot. You are mo- going to hit most likely a straighter shot. So in those situations, you can be a little bit more aggressive in, in maybe going to a flag stick that you wouldn't be aggressive with if the ball was below your feet. Obviously, an uphill lie, you're going to hit the ball very high, but when you hit the ball high, you're going to lose distance. So mm-hmm. if I'm hitting a, if your 7-iron normally goes 150 yards, if you're on an uphill lie, then you want to adjust by maybe going to your six iron instead of your seven iron. A downhill lie is going to produce a lower ball flight that is going to tend to roll more. So um, what I tend to tell my students is when you're on a downhill lie, instead of using the seven iron, go with the more lofty club like the eight iron. When you're on an uphill Mm -hmm. lie, go with the less lofty club. So instead of going from hitting the seven, you'll go to the six. So on uphill lies, you take a stronger club. On downhill lies, you take a more lofty club. And, and those are little tips uh, in, that most people don't uh, take into consideration when they're out there uh, on the golf course and they're clubbing themselves. They, look at the, they just look at the raw distance and they say, okay, I'm 150 yards, and they immediately grab their 7-iron or their 8-iron or whatever club it is but they don't look at their lie. You know, they might be coming out of the rough. They might have a lie where there's a real thin lie, where there's, you know, coming out of a sandy divot or something like that. 
So you're going to sometimes gain distance or lose distance based on the lie. And so you need to know how to read your lie. That's the first thing that I do when I get to my golf ball is I look at my lie and my lie dictates everything. You know, if I have a good lie, I have a lot of options. If I have a bad lie, my options get down to, okay, how can I get out of trouble and get back into, into play? So course management, understanding your lies, understanding the slopes and how they're going to affect your loft. Those are things that the average golfer does not take into consideration. And the more you can understand these things, the better decisions you're going to make on the golf course. Yep, and it goes back to the key elements here is, is really to practice those shots that you certainly uh, from time to time, maybe not all the time, but you are going to be faced with them. Um, but as we alluded to, very seldomly do people prepare for them. Um, you know, hitting those low shots, those punch shots, um, you know, imagine you're hitting below uh, maybe a couple of branches that are in a tree, you're, you're stuck behind a tree. Um, maybe you're into the wind or, or, you know, the wind's behind you. Uh, again, you've got to practice these shots. And if you're, if you're on the range and the wind is not there, that's still okay. You can still work on some of those punch-style shots um, to, to sort of simulate that. You can use a little bit of imagination. But you need to practice those shots because I guarantee at some point in your round, you're going to be faced with some of the ones that we've talked about at least once, maybe twice or more, uh, depending on the level of play you, you are. Um, and if you're not practicing them, then you're going to get in a situation where, um, you know, you're not maybe going to be able to save a par or even get a bogey. You might be looking at a two, you know, a double or triple bogey in that case. And then you've just, you know, maybe blown a, a good round. So you definitely want to practice those shots, um, and work on those even a little bit when you're in a full bone practice session, you don't necessarily have to get into them too, too much in a warm up session just before you play but it would be a good idea to pull those clubs out and hit a couple of those shots or try a couple of those shots if you can just to give yourself a little bit of confidence going out to the, to the golf course. Um, the next one, John, I think is, is really a no-brainer, um, and, and it's really important to work on these two areas. We're going to sort of split them up a little bit. Um, timing and tempo. Uh, timing, I'm going to give the first one and let you talk a little bit about tempo. Timing is uh, in a golf swing is is very important and and really is rarely understood. The purpose here is to time the unleashing of power into the golf ball while trying to square the club head. So and it's definitely not an easy task uh, for some of our higher handicap players. So to put it simply, if the lower hand on the club does not turn over soon enough, then the club head will open uh, and produce the slice. If on the other hand it turns over too early, the club head uh, will shut, resulting in a hook. So once you understand the importance of timing and that it is impossible to hit a straight shot every time, you will see the variance in the ball flight uh, that we talked about, discussed, if your timing is a little ahead of uh, a little head or behind. John, maybe you can talk about tempo because they do work together, but tempo is a little bit different. Um, what are we referring to here in tempo? Well, tempo, you're looking at, at the speed that it takes you to go back into the ball uh, in one second. So if, if you were to take all the tour players from uh, and have them hit shots, like with a seven iron, and you were to time their swing, you were to actually take a stopwatch and time when their club starts going back all the way to the top, all the way down to the ball, when they're actually making impact with the ball. If you were to take that time and you were to average it out between the entire uh, PGA Tour or the LPGA, it would average out to right about a second. So if you can get your club to go back into the ball in one second, 
then you're doing the same thing that a tour player does. And this is one of the things that I do with all of my students. And, and it doesn't matter. You can be a beginner. I start them out with, like, putting, for example, and I try to get them to go back into the ball in that one second. Well, when it comes to the golf swing, that tempo is, is the same. And you're try, all you're doing is, is you're just making a fuller swing with a longer club. But the, the, the speed that you're doing at will increase as you go to the longer club. So, for example, my driver's swing speed is going to be faster than my putter's swing speed, but the time back into the ball is going to be that one second. So what you're trying to do with the tempo is, is you're trying to work on a, a player's tempo to make sure that they can do that and they can go back into the ball in that one second. So a lot of times I'll use a metronome. Some of my players are, are too quick. I have some players who have really short backswings and they have really short follow-throughs. And, um, you know, it's, we, call it, we used to call them daylight uh, uh, hitters. As soon as there was daylight between the club and the ball, they would hit it. So they would go back. Their swings were so short, there was no, it was there was no backswing at all. So players who have really quick, quick swings, uh, what I'll do is I'll give them like for example the orange whip. The orange whip will naturally lengthen your swing. It will naturally slow down your swing. So someone that's too quick, I'm trying to do things to slow them down. If you don't have an orange whip. Um, if you if you feel like you have a quick golf swing, if, you, if you've been told you have a quick golf swing, I would recommend ordering the Orange Whip. Uh, I'm not endorsed by them, but I would I'm telling you it's the best teaching device. I just bought mm -hmm. one for myself at the PGA Show this year. It is fantastic for for slowing down your tempo and helping you to to uh, allow the club to do more of the work. Now, if, if you're on the other hand, someone that is too too slow in their golf swing, you have a real long, lazy swing or too slow of a takeaway, and, and you're not creating enough power, then what we want to do is speed up your, your transition and speed up your swing. So there's a lot of things that I'll do to try to get my students to speed up. One is uh, in some of these videos, if you go on uh, my website, uh, if you go on um, DeckerGolf.com, you can see some of these drills. But, but uh, so one of them is the running start drill where I have the student put the club out in front of the ball and then swing back over the ball and then hit the ball. And that little extra momentum helps to get them, uh, you know, a little bit faster. An another uh, great way to do this, to speed up your tempo is to hit into an impact bag. If you've seen those big yellow, um, Dr. David Wyron put out the, the impact bag years ago. It's probably one of the most famous uh, teaching devices out there where, where you have that impact bag. Um, that will help speed up your tempo because there's, it's big and it allows you to uh, make swings. You're not focused on a golf ball, but as soon as your club goes back, you shift and you try to move that, you know, hit that bag as, as quick as possible if you have too slow of a swing. So those are just some examples that will help you. I have some step drills, uh, step through drills where your body is actually physically stepping through the shot to help speed up your tempo. So tempo is very important. When you look at really, uh, really elite players, um, like a Colin Morikawa has a really smooth tempo. You look at a John Rahm, he has as quick a tempo as, as anyone I've ever seen. Um, now, mm -hmm. I believe that I would rather someone's tempo be on the slower side than on the quicker side because um, on the, in the long, over the long haul, it's a lot easier on your body. Uh, I feel like that that's something that, you know, John Rahm uh, will probably down the road have to face as he gets older. 
I remember saying this same thing about Jason Day because Jason Day's swing had gotten really quick and short, and sure enough, he started having some back issues. So, uh, you know, it's important that you that you identify whether you're quick or whether you're slow, and then work, have drills or things that you can you can do to to try to get your your timing uh, so it's more consistent uh, with with what we're, what we're trying to do. And the last thing is is when I'm using the metronome is I actually in my head will count. So I'll count one, two, swing, swing. So I'm trying to get my club to go back on swing and then hit the ball on swing. So that one, two count is to a second. And using a metronome, taking a metronome, putting it on, you can put it on 60 to 63 beats. If you download it on your phone, listen to that metronome and try to get your count on that metronome. And if you can learn to go back into the ball in that one second, your tempo will be just the same as the tour players. Yeah, and that's some great advice. And, and you know, just to, just to add real quickly, just to sort of sum this up a little bit about tempo, you know, as you mentioned, it's referring to the speed of your swing and is really the key to good timing. So when you're swinging well and in balance, your tempo will be smooth and rhythmic. Um, it also, again, it, it affects your timing. If you swing too slow or too fast, uh, your timing will be thrown off. So the key is really, as John pointed out, is to find your own rhythm. Don't try to copy someone else. You can certainly watch theirs, and if it seems similar, I always look at it this way, and John, you may have done this as well. Um, I look at how somebody, when they walk, their, their gait, if you will, if you see somebody that's sort of very slow walker, typically they'll have a slow uh, tempo. If somebody's a quick walker, they obviously usually have a quick tempo. So if you're somebody, as an example, if you're somebody that, that kind of slow walker or sort of methodical walker, um, it's not likely you're going to want to have a quick tempo. So you don't want to do the opposite to what your natural body rhythm has. And again, you can certainly make some adjustments. Um, that's certainly okay. But you don't want to do completely opposite. You know, you refer to the to the players. Um, if you're, you know, if you're somebody that is a much slower player, you don't want to try to copy, you know, wrong uh, because it's just not going to it's not going to naturally happen. And then you end up getting out of balance. So it's very key that the two, your tempo and timing, work together. You find out what the best rhythm is, and a good place to start is just to take a nice, uh, you know, easy uh, walk down the street. And just sort of notice, you know, do I, am I walking pretty quick? Am I kind of slow in my walk? Um, and kind of feel your rhythm and then take that to the golf course and certainly do some of the steps that John talked about. Um, I, I think that's great. And I think, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about so far are, are certainly a good uh, way to approach this. Um, but there's also, as I mentioned, these are some of the things we talked about, John, are, are really more designed for somebody that um, – you know, maybe getting ready to uh, hit that first tee. Um, they want to do a few things to, to sort of loosen up, warm up, that type of thing. But we also want to give them a little bit, and all of these things can certainly work in either situation, but we also want to talk a little bit about um, working on your, uh, your game while you're out in the range on a day when you're not playing. You may not be with your coach or your teaching pro, and you want to go out and work on some of the things, now's the time to start working on things. And one thing, and I know we talked about this probably to nausea, I'm not sure if people listening on this show, but it's an important one, and that is the pre-shot routine. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. There's uh, four parts to the pre-shot routine. I actually did an article on this uh, last year, and um, it's probably one of my favorite um, really topics to talk about. 
Uh, but there's four parts to, to any pre-shot routine, and that is number one is you have to pick your target. We talked about that earlier. So when you're on the driving range or on the golf course, you always have a target in golf. You should never hit a shot without a target. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. So you pick a target first. That's the first thing. And that, if you look at all tour players, they all do it from behind the ball. They don't do it from beside the ball. They all get behind the ball. They they visualize a target out in the out in the out in the horizon. I like to pick a target that's vertical. So if uh, the the target is not always the flagstick, let's say I'm aiming 20 feet to the right of the flagstick. Well, in the distance, I try to find a tree, a tower, a house, something in the distance uh, distance on the horizon uh, that's vertical. I never pick something like an animal, like a duck or a a squirrel or uh, a cloud. I never pick anything that can move. I always pick something that's fixed. The second thing is you want to feel your shot. So as soon as I see my shot, the next thing I want to do is feel my shot. I want to get a feel for the shot, especially in the short game. I don't need to have a lot of feel for a shot with a driver. I can make a couple of practice swings and then I'm ready to go. But if I've got to hit a flop shot over a bunker, man, I'm going to make a lot of practice swings to try to feel that shot because that's a very difficult shot, um, you know, and it re- requires more touch. So the more touch that's required, the more practice swings I'll usually make. The third thing you want to do is execute the shot. So once you see the shot and once you feel the shot, you step in and you actually put, you put the club behind the ball, you get your ball positions, your distance from the ball, and then you want to look up at your target again. You don't want to just get zoomed in on that ball and start thinking about four or five swing thoughts. You want to put that club down behind the ball and immediately get your eyes up looking at your target. The best player that I've seen that does um, that um, that does this is Jordan Speed. Jordan Speed will look at the target 15 or 20 times. I've never seen anyone look at the target more than he does. And then the last thing is is you know you go ahead and you execute the shot. And then the last thing is to trust all the above. So a real simple way, this is from Bob Rotella, 101, is you see it, you feel it, you do it, and then you trust it. And if you do all four of those things, you will execute the shot to the best of your ability. You may not pull it off. You may hit a poor shot. But you will be able to say, My, I did everything that I physically knew how to do, and I did everything mentally that I knew how to do, and I gave it my best opportunity and best shot. And then from there, you just go play your next one. And that's what you do for the entire round. You see it, you Mm -hmm. feel it, do it, you trust it. And if you can stick to that plan, you're fine. But what happens is is people will do that on the first hole, and then they hit a bad shot, and then they say, well, that didn't work. I'm going to go try this. I'm going to go back to my swing thought that I – that my teacher told me or whatever. And you can't do that. Do that. You've got to stick to the, stick to the plan. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, to, to go to the, the second point that you made with, was really the, the feel is extremely important. I mean, I, I can't begin to tell you how many times, you know, I'll see somebody go out and they'll have a specific shot that requires a, a specific movement. Maybe it's an abbreviated follow-through. Maybe it's a shorter backswing. But they'll, their practice swing will be like a regular swing, and it doesn't mimic anything uh, about the shot they're about to play. And then they try to go, you know, like you'll see a full swing, um, and they'll just do sort of a little half swing, practice swing, uh, or the opposite. They'll do, uh, you know, it's a shorter uh, swing needed, um, and they'll do full swing practice. So then now they don't know how far to take the club back 
happens both off the, you know, on, on the course, but also on the putting green as well. You know, they're, maybe they've got a, 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 a 10 foot putt and they're just sort of stabbing, you know, at their practice stroke. They're not really practicing what it should feel like to do a, a 10 foot putt or a 20 foot putt lag. Uh, you know, so I think that's one that really I see, and, and I just want to get your thoughts a little bit more on that, um, that I see a lot on the practice uh, range is is people not actually practicing uh, the shot or feeling the shot they actually need to, to uh, do on that particular time. What do you, what do you think? Well, you're exactly right. Um, you know, I've, I've had people who, um, you know, will set up the side of the ball and they'll have a, a, a little chip shot. Uh, you know, maybe they're, right. maybe they're only a few yards off the green and they're in the rough and they can't putt it. And so they'll make these real long swings. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, if they hit it like that, it's going to go, you know, over the green. And then they'll hit their shot, and their shot looks nothing like their practice swing or their rehearsal swing. If you look at it, if you watch golf on television and pay attention to the short game around the greens and watch the tour players, and just by the way they make their rehearsal swings, I can tell you exactly what they're trying to do. I can tell you if they're trying to hit it high. I can tell you if they're trying to hit it low. I can tell you, you know, if they're um, going to play a little bump and run. You can tell by the way they're making their backswing and their follow-through what they're getting ready to do, and then they end up doing it. Um, and, and usually um, when they're committed to that, when they get in there and they make that, they have a committed practice swing, and then they step in and hit the shot, they usually hit a pretty good shot, especially the tour players. Where you see the right. tour players right. struggle is when they're second guessing themselves. When they're when one right. practice swing right. looks you know big long and the next one looks short, that's when you you know that they're they don't know what to hit and you're better off to commit to the wrong shot than to not commit to the correct shot. So commitment is so important when it comes to pre-shot routine and execution on the golf course. Yeah, and and. Again, I, I think for, for a lot of our, 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 especially our club golfers or high handicap golfers out there that are struggling with their games, I, I think that when you're not actually preparing for the task at hand, you're, you're really doing yourself a disservice because you're not learning anything. All you're doing is you're just sort of going through the motions. And I am also, the other thing that I want to add to this is, with respect to the, to the pre-shot routine is if for some reason, even if you're just a, a regular, you know, high handicap golfer and you're out there and something as you're going through the routine, something distracts you, and obviously you have to be conscious of, of, you know, time and, and slow play and things like that. But if you're going through your routine and you're not confident, maybe you've selected the wrong club, stop right where you are, grab the right club and go through your routine. It's important that you see it from start to finish. Don't go in it with uncertainty or second guessing yourself because again, that's defeating the purpose. And I like the point that you made about, you know, if you hit a bad shot, don't then just, you know, default to an old routine, stick to the one that you've, you've been working on, the one you have now and build consistency. Cause that's another thing. And I'm sure you would agree that we see a lot of times is people will, automatic same thing you know when they've made a, a grip change and you know maybe it's it's not working the way they would want they default back to their old grip because it feels comfortable and that's something that we see a lot uh, your thoughts there well you're exactly right i mean um 
you know, golf is such a mental game, and um, the, the more consistent you are with your routine, I mean, we're all creatures of, of habit. You know, I always um, have used the example. I like to, when I'm teaching my students, the majority of people that I work with are very, very successful people. And they're successful, and they, they, golf is a leisure activity for them. So I always say to them, you know, if I were to go into your business and, um, and you have a set way to do something, um, you know, and you, and you stick to that, and that, and that way has been successful for your company for years and years and years, you don't vary from that. You don't change that every day. You know, you don't log onto your computer a different way every day. You do it the same way every time. That's your pre-shot routine. Or when a situation at work happens that doesn't, uh, maybe um, there's a situation that happens that doesn't fit what you normally do uh, or that's not normal, uh, you have a default that you go to that you deal with that situation. Well, that's what you do in golf. You know, I have a plan on the golf course to hit a shot. Well, my ball doesn't go where, I'm, where I want it to go. Okay, so now what's the first thing I do? Whenever I miss the green, I always ask myself, here's my default. The first thing I ask myself is, can I putt? If I can putt, I'm going to putt. The second thing is, no, I can't putt. Okay, I'm going to chip. If I can't putt, I'm going to chip. Well, no, I can't chip because I've got to go over a bunker. Well, if I can't chip, then I'm going to hit a pitch shot. Uh, and if I have to hit a pitch shot, I'm going to hit a low pitch first. And then my next default is, well, if I can't hit a low pitch, then I'm going to go with a medium pitch. And if I can't hit a medium pitch, then I'm going to go with a high pitch. So that's kind of the way, if I miss the green, that's the order that my mind works. I don't, I don't uh, that way when I'm in these situations, I can say this is the way we, we're going to handle this situation. And it just gives you a little more confidence in that you've thought through, you know, when you miss the green. And, and I'm not doing this right over the ball. I've already gone through this in my head as I'm approaching the ball. Uh, and sometimes I can tell from, I can tell from my where, you know, if I hit a tee shot or on a par three and I miss the green, you know, and I'm only a couple yards off the green, I'm telling myself I'm either going to putt that or I'm going to chip it uh, or a little chip and run. You know, I'm going to try to play a little low shot. If I miss it and I've got a bunker in front of me, I'm already grabbing my sand wedge and my lob wedge. You know, am I going to go with a, a high bunker shot or a low? I'd rather, excuse me, a, a pitch shot. Would I rather go with a low pitch? or a high pitch. So I always try to go the low weight first and the high, high weight last. That's always my last resort. Yep. So having that plan of how you're going to attack situations on the golf course is very critical. Yeah, and it all comes under, uh, you know, having good uh, course management. And that's something, you know, uh, Jack Nicholas always talked about. You know, that was his real strong suit. I mean, he was certainly uh, a decent ball striker, but he wasn't the best out on tour, but he had, you know, phenomenal course management skills that he was able to take out there and assess the situation. Another com key component too that often gets overlooked and it's something again you, you've got to be um, diligent with and that is a sort of a post-shot evaluation or post-shot uh, routine and, and that is once you've executed the shot and you've, you've done your pre-shot routine you've now executed the shot obviously you've got to make way for the other players but as you're you know walking back evaluate the shot you just did you know, number one, did I, did I successfully execute my pre-shot routine the way I've been rehearsing it or the way I've been practicing it? You know, did I take the steps? Did I go through all the steps? Um, you know, did I execute the shot that I wanted uh, and the, get the desired result? So you want to do a, a quick evaluation. 
and just make jot a real quick note uh, or you know put a little check mark or something so that hey this was a success you know I got that um, you know near the hole uh, you know make, maybe keep a little pad with you or something like that uh, you know and if you're you know taking a golf court you keep uh, cart excuse me you can keep it in there but I think that's important too uh, don't you think John is to really sort of assess what just happened. Uh, and again, it, it can happen very quickly. You don't have to spend a lot of time, but it's good to take those mental notes afterwards and then review it when you get back to the clubhouse or you get home later that evening and you can go through shot by shot and say, okay, here's what happened here. Here's what happened. And that way you're not sort of going from a long-term memory. You've kind of made some uh, some notes along the way. What, what do you think on that? A sort of a post-evaluation. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I'm always, anytime I play golf, I'm always um, replaying it in my mind when I'm done. And it starts by taking stats. Um, I always keep up with my fairways, my greens and regulation, number of putts, up and down percentage, bunker percentage. I also keep a, a, a total, my total putts. And then I average out, you know, my putts when I hit, get on the green, um, when I get on the green. Uh, so I have an, an a, a, you know, a number of how many strokes it takes me on average to get into the hole. So, for example, if you have like a, a really elite tour player, it's going to be like a 1.6 uh, into the hole. So when they're on the green, it's going to take them 1.6 shots to get into the to the hole. Where a higher handicap player might take three, or you know, uh, uh, or two and 2.5. You know, if you're up mm-hmm. around two, over two then that means you're having a lot of three putts because uh, you might have a one putt, but then you have a three putt. So keeping up with those stats is very, very important. It's a great way to gauge uh, your, your game, but it's also important. And the reason I like to encourage my students to, um, to keep their stats is I want them to bring their scorecards to me before, so I can look at it between lessons. And so when they come to me, you know, after a few lessons and then they said, here's my round, and I look at their, at their scorecard and I say, my goodness, you had, you know, you had 42 putts. We're going to go to the putting green. So those are, those are good ways for your teacher to know what's going on as well. Yeah, and there's a lot of great apps uh, and, and programs out there that you can get right on your phone that can allow you to record those statistics right away. Uh, and in many cases nowadays with technology, you can actually share it in real time with your coach. So even if they, um, you know, are not working with you at that particular time, maybe they're with other students, but you're out playing, um, they'll get notifications. You know, usually there's a, a joint account, if you will, where you're able to communicate back and forth. And those numbers, those statistics are going directly into, uh, you know, his system. And he can later review it um, for the next time when you guys get together. And that's a great way. And if he's not that busy at that particular moment uh, and you've finished up, he can maybe take a quick look and, and give you some, some thoughts uh, on, on what he's seeing, the numbers that he's seeing. So uh, it, it's very, very important. And, again, with t- today's technology, there's really no excuse in being able to, um, um, you, you know, look at that uh, information in real time. And it's important to gather that data um, to help your own assessment. I mean, it's not just entirely up to the coach. They're going to guide you and they're going to give you some, some tips and drills and things to work on, but it's a good idea for you to understand where your game is actually at. I, I, you know, can't emphasize this enough. You have to be realistic in your expectations of your game, and if you're thinking one thing, but the numbers and stats are showing something different, um, 
you know, that, that's, uh, that's a whole nother topic, but that's something that often happens is people sometimes under uh, estimate or overestimate uh, where they're at in their actual ability. So that's why it's important to keep that information uh, because that way then you can see it, your coach can see it, and together you can work on a, a, a game plan. Um, well, it's hard to believe, John, but uh, I think we, we managed to firm up the first part of the discussion uh, in Coach's Corner, first co- Coach's Corner of 2023. I think we did a good job, and I wanted to leave a few extra minutes to give you an opportunity uh, to let the folks know. I know you're getting ready in a few weeks. You're going to be um, you're down in Bonita Springs, Florida at, at uh uh, your second home, and you're going to be heading back up to Ohio here in a few weeks to get ready for a new golf season up at uh, the Medallion and in, uh, in Ohio. So uh, maybe you can share a little bit about what you got planned coming up uh, in the months and, and weeks ahead, and then uh, let the folks know if they want to reach out and, and uh, if you want to go ahead and plug the uh, the book and give them the information where they can. Well, first of all, Ted, I want to thank you for having having me on Coach's Corner uh, again. I don't. I don't know exactly how many years it has been, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a great opportunity for me to uh, be on with you. I, I really enjoy it, but I also learn a lot. Every time I come on this show, I pick something up from uh, a lot of the great uh, ho- or a lot of the great coaches that you have on, uh, and I pick up stuff from you as well. So it's been um, it's been great, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Sorry that Jamie wasn't able to make it tonight. I hope she's feeling better. For for uh, the uh, listeners out there, I am in Benita Springs, Florida right now. I will be heading back at the end of this month to Ohio, uh, to Columbus, Ohio area in Westerville. Actually, it's on the north side of town. Um, and I I um, can teach if you if you live in that area and want want to come out and do a lesson, or um, you know if you want to do an online lesson, I uh, do have online uh, availability. So if I can uh, do a lesson with you um, online as well. If, if that's something you're interested in. The best way to reach me is uh, to go on my website, DeckerGolf.com. I've got my videos up there. I've got my book information. Um, got videos broken. I broke them down into full swing and putting and shifting and pitching, also course management. I have golf fitness videos. Uh, some of my public speaking videos are on there and information, again, on, on my book. You can find me on social media. That's a great way to reach out to me. If you're if you are uh, interested in um, getting together for a lesson, you can go uh, social media wise on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, uh, YouTube, and also LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on that as well. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate to work with you, Ted, with Golf Tips Magazine, and uh, I really enjoy doing the instructional articles and the instructional videos. And for all the listeners out there, I highly recommend that you, if you're not a subscriber, that you become one with Golf Tips Magazine. I think it's a great investment. Um, it's, and, you know, it's just a lot of good tips on there, a lot of good instructional articles for you. And I would encourage all of you to go and subscribe and be a subscriber. And, and also just go check out the instructional videos. You can find the uh, instructional videos on, on YouTube, um, you know, under Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, you should be able to pull those up, and there's a lot of great ones on there. Uh, my article, also the Christian-based uh, article that I have in Golf Tips Magazine, the feature is called Fairways to Heaven, and I'm really excited about that feature. It's been um, a lot of fun to write, and um, I've got, I'll have got i have some exciting news. I'm not ready to share it yet about that, but I'll be uh, late, maybe later on in the year I'll, I'll be uh, sharing some information on the Fairways to Heaven feature. 
Um, in my book, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart. Uh, if you go on any of those, uh, you, those platforms, you can order the book directly. It's available in hard cover, soft cover. You can uh, download it also if you want to download it. Uh, and, and if you like to re, you know, read your books on the computer with the e-books, you can do that. And it's also now available in audio book as well. So it's on Amazon Audible. So if you go and, and put in Golf Is My Life uh, or John Decker, it should come up. And then if you're interested in public speaking, uh, I'd speak at churches. I speak for civic organizations, at golf courses. Uh, feel free to reach out. I can uh, put together a package and we can come in and do some instruction, instructional uh, part of it and also do some public speaking. And you can reach out to me again on social media under John Decker um, Golf Instruction. You can find me under, again, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, LinkedIn. So thanks again, Ted, for having me on the show, and I look forward to another great season. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well, John. Thank you, as always, for uh, bringing your best to the panel discussions and uh, also your best to Golf Tips Magazine. And again, if uh, you're going to hear in a moment uh, a brief message about Golf Tips Magazine and how you can subscribe. Uh, but thank you for all that you do, John, and I look forward to having you on the panel again next time. Thank you, Ted. All right. Have a good week. All right. That was John Decker uh, joining me on the first Coach's Corner panel of 2023. Again, unfortunately, Jamie wasn't able to join us this time, a little bit under the weather, and we wish you well and look forward to you joining us on uh, the next time. Uh, before I bring out uh, tonight's special guest, here's a quick tip, if you will, from Golf Tips Magazine on how you can subscribe. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, and don't forget to go to GolfTipsMag.com. You can subscribe. It's available in both print and digital version, and you can get either or, or you can get both. Uh, it makes a great gift as well. You can gift it. Uh, if, you've already, if you're already currently a subscriber to Golf Tips Magazine, maybe you've got uh, somebody in your foursome that uh, could use some help with some of the tips. Uh, you can gift a subscription to them and, and uh, get them well on their way. Um, and uh, makes a great uh, holiday gift and also a, a great birthday gift. It's uh, very economical. There are six issues that come out. It's a bi-monthly magazine, and again, it's available in print and digital. All right, I'm very excited to have my uh, special guest this evening back on the show. He was on, I believe, August of last year uh, talking about his book. I'm talking, of course, uh, about Charlie Meacham. Uh, he was a former LPGA commissioner and as well as the author of Arnie and Jack, let me tell you a little bit about him, and then I'll bring him on the show. Uh, he was also previously a lawyer uh, for Cincinnati's prestigious law firm, Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, uh, also a business executive who headed the Taft Broadcasting Empire of media outlets, including Hanna-Barbera, King's Island Amusement Park. Uh, then, as I mentioned, he became the commissioner of the Ladies Professional Golf Association, or LPGA for short. Uh, he was also a longtime consultant advisor to both Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. 
but as he puts it, he's not all business. Uh, born in Nelsonville, Ohio, a small town nestled in the northwestern uh, corner of Athens County. He still thinks of himself as a small town boy and is consistently in awe of the many wonderful friends that his career has allowed him to meet and enjoy along the way. And he and his lovely wife, Marilyn, and their three children and five grandchildren live now in California. So please welcome my very special guest back to Golf Talk Live, Charlie Meacham. Hello. Good evening, Charlie. Welcome. Hi, Charlie. How are you? you? It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, I'm glad to have you back on the show. And uh, we're going to talk. I know you've got some uh, some new news, if you will, about the book to, to share it in a little bit. We're going to do that in a, in a bit. But I just want to go back uh, in time a little bit with you, Charlie, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, how did you develop? How did you develop passion for this game? I mean, it, it, you know, everybody has their own story. What was your story? How did you get involved in golf? How did it begin to be a passion for you? Well, uh, first of all, I I love sports of all kinds, but I was particularly taken to golf. Um, because it was such an easy way to be with friends and also probably the only game where you can play with your wife and your kids, whatever age, be with them in a social setting. And then I think something that always uh, drew me to the game were the venues on which it's played, um, both in uh, Scotland and Ireland, and of course I've played uh, Korea, Japan, and other Australia, other countries, but I I loved just the simple venues uh, and the beauty and the serenity, for the most part, of uh, of the of the places where golf is played. There are so many, uh, Charlie, so many great golf courses around the world, as you just mentioned. Obviously, many, many here, many thousands here in the United States alone, but obviously in other right. countries. What were some of your fond memories playing outside of, of the U.S. for the time being? What were some of the, the courses that you played that you really, really enjoyed that maybe were a little different than what you would typically see here? Well, I actually was a member of Macrahanish for uh, five years or so. I went to Scotland with a friend of mine, and we played Macrahanish. And the reason we played Macrahanish is I had called a friend of mine who planned golf trips, and I said, I want to go someplace that's as close to what it was when it started as still exists, other than the old course and maybe a few others. And he said, then there are only two of those, Macri and Macrahanish. So we went to Macrahanish, which is the tip, the tip of the Kintyre Peninsula uh, in Scotland. And we fell in love with it. We actually became members. And I went back <laughs> several times to play there. Um, I also loved Arnie's course uh, in uh, in uh, Ireland, Tralee, um, and of course the old course. There's a new course, new old course, um, Dumbarney Links, uh, close to St Andrews, which a dear friend of mine, Clive Clark, designed. And I've not been there, but it's getting rave reviews. So that's those are a few of the spots. I, I but I have to uh, violate your your intro a little bit by saying that uh, okay. my home course back in Ohio is the Camargo club, which I still mm-hmm. think is the greatest club that I've ever played. It was a Seth Rayner 1920. It is a Seth Rayner 1925 design. Um, and Pete Dye of all people 
said it was one of his four or five favorite courses in the world. So uh, I got to get a plug in for Camargo. <laughs> well, that's good. Tell me why uh, why you feel that. I mean, obviously it's in your your neck of the woods um, where you grew up in that. But what was special about that course? Um, Seth Rayner, as you may know, uh, was a classic designer, and although he worked um, for uh, oh I can't think of his name now, one of the greats, uh, he did a, a, several courses that. Uh, he's he's not given credit for. Uh, he drew heavily on uh, courses that he was familiar with in uh, in Scotland, uh, and uh, and designed on almost every course he built. He uh, he borrowed from the uh, from the uh, holes that he knew from uh, from Scot from Scotland, and uh, uh, it has the classic big square greens, which you don't see much of anymore, um, right. very few bunkers, uh, no, no water at all, um, and just, just typically, classically, uh, a course uh, that you would love to play. I'm, by the sound of it, I'm liking that course already. I think I would concur with you. It sounds like a good, <laughs> no water and, and very few, if any bunkers on it, I think I would like that. That golf course very much. I may have to uh, look that up and and uh, and see if I can find my way to to get out and play some. But um, but you, uh, you know you it, would it, also find a lot of three putts because the greens are so big that uh, mm-hmm. you can get on the edge and still have two three tough putts to go down. So it has its own compensations. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I figured it was not going to be that easy, but no, um, no. But you know, no. it, it may it may. <laughs> It makes it easy, Charlie, to, you know, this game to draw so many people, um, especially yeah. now. Yeah. You know, we just had this very challenging pandemic over the last few years that we've right. sort of gotten onto the other side. And what's been really interesting is a lot of diversity now coming to the game. There's a lot of different people that never, you know, didn't grow right. up, you know, playing uh, or, you know, their parents weren't members of country clubs or maybe their right. parents didn't play at all. And they're they're getting drawn to this game. And... What's interesting is they, even those folks that didn't grow up in the game, still know who Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas were, and they, they recognize those names. And it's interesting when you ask them; they may not know a lot of information about them, but they recognize those names. Um, and you obviously wrote a book. We're going to talk about the book, but I want you to share your fondest memory of both, and you can start with either one. Um. With Arnie, it's impossible to uh, isolate one moment, but I could capsulize a lot of moments by answering a question that I was frequently asked, uh, is he the same in public as in private? And I said, absolutely. And you can't say that about many celebrities, golfer or entertainment or whatever. so many of them change personalities dramatically when they're not in the public mm-hmm. eye. Arnie was always the same, and I shared an office with him at Bay Hill for ten years, so I can uh, mm-hmm. I can testify to the fact that he was absolutely unchanged from uh, public uh, to private, and that's probably what what I cared most about him and what intrigued me most. Uh, and, and the reason we became such close friends. With Jack, 
uh, I think it was his sheer brilliance that uh, captivated me. And also, and I think I say this in the book, other than maybe Tiger, but I'm not even sure about Tiger, had the concentration level that Jack did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I learned this the hard way. I met Jack first (laughs) at a dinner meeting where we did our first deal way back in the in the early 70s, and uh, we got along that day, a very pleasant evening. So the next day, I go out to the golf course, and I position myself on one hole between the green and the next hole, the next tee, thinking I could say hello to him as he went by. Well, he came by, looked me right in the eye, and walked right on with no sign of recognition. Well, I was I was just decimated. I thought, oh my God, what? Right. So I ran into one of his fellow, one of his colleagues, shortly thereafter, and I said, "Did I upset our uh, Jack in some way?" And he said, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Well, he just walked right by me and didn't didn't even acknowledge." He said, "Charlie, he never even knew you were there. When he plays right. golf, there's only one thing he looks at, and that's going from <laughs> the green to the next tee." So I think it was just Jack's sheer brilliance um, and his concentration uh, that captivated me with him. You know, it's interesting that they're they're so uniquely different, but at the same time, there are similarities. What do you think some of the similarities between the two are? I mean, obviously, Arnold was was a very humble, and they're both humble, obviously, in their own ways. But, oh, yeah. But yeah. I heard somebody one time years ago, and I don't recall who it was. It was an announcer, perhaps, but they said the one thing about Arnold which sort of goes to your point, was that he was real in the sense, and you you talk about celebrities. He never really, uh, certainly, uh, you know, he enjoyed uh, a wonderful life and and so forth uh, through a lot of hard work. Right. Right. But he didn't boast about himself. He wasn't, hey, I'm the king, and, you know, this type of thing. He was very humble, and and I know from a few people that knew him well, uh, in addition to yourself, uh, that he did some things that you would be shocked, and, I mean, positive things, you know, around Bay Hill and yeah, and yeah, just, you know, yeah. cleaning up this and that. People think, why are you doing that? Can't you pay somebody to do that? He just enjoyed being a part of that. And and Jack, uh, you know, had his own thing. What were some of the similarities between the two, if any? Um, I think the devotion to the game, maybe for different reasons, but they they felt very strongly about the ethics and the morality of of the game itself, and that I, I I've often wondered what what Arnie would be saying these days with the live golf and the right. uh, changes that the tour is making. Um, I think he and and Jack uh, probably would rather see things back to the point where they were when they basically created the tour. Um, so mm-hmm. I think, and the other thing about Jack that was never people never realized he was a devoted family man and i saw yes. that in spades one time he invited me to play golf uh, and i uh, my wife and i went down to uh, to uh, florida and we played at the bears club and uh, he always had the deal where he managed to lose and then he'd pay you ten dollars <laughs> with an inscription <laughs> that he knew you'd never cash um so uh we went back to the house, and it was in the fall, uh, early fall, and we turned on a, a, a probably Ohio State game. And within, they say he sat back in this uh, lounge chair, and within 10 minutes, he had about eight grandchildren hanging all over him. 
Oh, and I, I thought to myself, <laughs> if the if the world could see this, they would say, wait yeah. a minute, it's that Jack Nichols. But he was a devoted family man. And, of course, Arnie felt strongly, too, about yeah. about his family. So those are some of the similarities. Yeah, and, and they gave so much to the game. And, and, and integrity oh. is another word that comes to mind as well Absolutely. with the two of them. Um, you know, they, they were certainly ambassadors, and that's putting it politely. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, I mean, I, I should say I would raise them up a little higher than that even. But, you know, they were just good, decent people that found a game that they were passionate about, that they loved, approached the, their styles were different, obviously. Um, but they both had the same integrity and wanting to see the game elevated and to succeed and really rise to a level. You know, what's interesting, and, and it's really, I'm surprised, and I want to get your thoughts on this, and then we're going to dive into the book a little bit. You know, we see in, in the school systems so many other sports, football, baseball, things like that, and there yeah. certainly is some golf. I would love to see golf more integrated into our school systems so that kids that maybe didn't grow up, as I mentioned earlier, in a, in a country right. club environment could get access to the game. And I know that obviously there's a cost difference when you, when you pair it out, but I think now, you know, with, with so many companies out yeah. there in golf, I think there's a way to do that. What do you think about that? Do you think that this is something that really needs to happen and should have happened a lot sooner? The problem is golf, as you know, is a very difficult game, and it's very mm -hmm. easy for a youngster to get frustrated by their inability. You know, they can go out and, and, and play uh, uh, baseball or even football and, and, and have fun at it. Um, right. Golf, it's harder to have fun, but once you begin to get into it, it is fun, and mm -hmm. I would love to see that. I think the first tee is doing that to yep. a degree. Um, but I quite agree with you, but I think you've got to make golf fun. I remember when we started mm -hmm. the LPGA Junior uh, Girls Golf uh, Program, right. we did some yep. research, and a couple of very interesting things came out of that. One was that girls think golf as be more social. So we started yes. arrangements where we'd have uh, – have days where they could bring their boyfriends out to play. Valentine's mm -hmm. Day was a big day. We made we made golf yep. social. The other thing was yes. we learned girls get embarrassed if they if if they can't play well and they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their their boyfriends or their or their friends. Right. And right. guys don't give a damn, you know. But so right. we managed to. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, we managed to try to keep the the programs uh, with, for girls only. Uh, except for those special events. One other thing, I don't want to forget this um, about Jack and Arnie. Um, they were both, they both had strong Midwestern values. Arnie grew up in Latrobe yes. in eastern Pennsylvania, yep. I mean western Pennsylvania, and Jack in mm -hmm. Columbus. And, of course, I grew up in southeastern Ohio. So I, I could tell these guys shared good, solid Midwestern values, and I think that was very important in both their lives. I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. So there came a point in time, you obviously had a lot of uh, relationship with the two of them. You knew them for many, many years. You got to be around them. What was the deciding factor? I mean, we, we've seen books written on either or, but you decided to put them both in a book. What prompted that decision to, to put them both in a book? 
and then maybe share some of the, uh, I mean, obviously we don't give them all away, but share some of the stories that uh, you have okay. in the book. The, uh, the way it started was I, I belonged to a club in uh, Southern California called Tradition, and uh, the president of the club and I were having lunch one day. This was several years back. And he said, Charlie, you know, he said, I've been thinking you may be one of the few people, if not the only person, who knew Arnie and Jack intimately at the same time. And I said, well, that's an interesting thought. It, it, uh, I don't know if I was the only one, but certainly there weren't many. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so he said, I would like you to make a talk to the membership of our club and share some of the stories. So I did that, and the talk was well-received, and I was urged then to write a book. And so I basically used the speech as a model for the book that turned out to be Arnie and Jack. Um, it was I, I learned one thing. It's not easy to turn a speech into a book. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, hard, it's hard work, but uh, I enjoyed right. it a lot. Um, it's hard to pick one, but maybe, maybe uh, I'll pick a couple. Uh, one of my favorites is I got a call one day from Tim Fincham, who was then the commissioner of the PGA Tour, and he said, uh, right. Charlie, I need your help. And I started to laugh, and he said, what are you laughing at? And I said, well, this has got to be an historic moment, Tim, because I can't remember any time where the commissioner of the PGA Tour called the retired commissioner of the LPGA and asked for help. And he said, <laughs> well, I do need your help. He said, I've been trying to get Jack and Arnie to build a golf course at the World Golf Hall of Fame. We call it the King and the Bear, and they would jointly design it. But I can't get them to do it. They just won't do it. Would you give it a try? So I did. I had meetings with both guys. And uh, it turned out they, uh, they, oh, I don't have time, and our design philosophy is totally different. So I, I wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, well, I've got an idea. I'm going to try it out. So I drove down to, to Jack's office in North Palm Beach, and uh, I said, Jack, I'm just going to ask you one more time. This is really important. Tim wants this to happen. I think it would be great. Uh, won't, you, won't you give this a go? Oh, I don't know, Charlie. You know, we designed different courses and you know, on and on. So I said, okay, I give up. But don't complain to me when uh, you are asked to uh, bless the uh, player Trevino course at the World Golf Hall of Fame. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> and I said, you don't think you're going to give up on doing the course? And if you and Arnie don't do it, um, they'll, they'll ask the next two guys to player in Trevino. Well, and I did the same thing the next day with Arnie, and it's no exaggeration to say that within a week, um, spades were in the ground. <laughs> it's an absolute, absolutely true story. Um, another cute story in the book is when uh, they got uh, he and Kit, Arnie's second wife, got married in Hawaii, um, and uh, he was playing the tournament there, and Kit. Excuse me, Kit found a justice of peace way out in the wilds of Oahu, who uh, uh, a little Japanese lady, and she drove. They drove out there to get married, and they wanted to keep it very private. In fact, uh, Arnie's pilot was the only the only uh, witness. So um, he called me, and he said, "How you doing?" And I said, "Arnie, your tone suggests to me that you got married." And he laughed. He said, yeah, I did. So I then talked to Kit about it, and she said, here's the funny part. 
as we were driving out to the little JP's office, I said to Arnie, now, Arnie, don't be upset if this little gal doesn't know you because we're clear out in the middle of nowhere and she's probably mm-hmm. not going to know who you are. So don't get upset. <coughs> so he says, oh, no, no, no problem. So they went through the ceremony and they they paid the little Japanese JP and they were leaving the, her little office and she called out to Kit. He said, lady, do you know how lucky you are? <laughs> <laughs> so it was perfectly clear that uh, she knew she knew quite well who Arnie who Arnie was. Uh, well, you know what's interesting about that is uh, you mentioned that she was Japanese. You know, next to the U.S., Japanese is probably the second oh, biggest God, golf yes. market in the world. So oh, I would Lord, be surprised yes. if she didn't know who Arnold Palmer was. That's you know, true. It's it's really it's really interesting. I want to ask you a question about the two of them. Now yeah. I know they were both obviously very very competitive in their own yep. ways. And obviously they were yep. different how they approached the game. Was one more competitive than the other, do you think? Or were they equal but different? Uh, I, I think they were equal, but it, it, it didn't show the same way. Um, with Jack, again, because of his concentration, there was never any question um, of his competitiveness. With Arnie, because of his charisma, uh, I don't think I – I think sometimes – his real competitive juices were not as visible as they, in fact, were. So uh, I mm. think they were both competitive, but it was it was different. Yeah, I mean their personalities were so much much different. Obviously, when you you know, as you said, Jack was somebody that really was very steely eyed and and you know yeah. would would walk past you without a, a thought. And, you know, I'm sure if somebody was to look at that today would say, well, boy, that's rude. You know, he's walking right past me. He doesn't know who well, I am. Uh, but again, he, but, but again, knowing what you know now, um, that's just the level of, of concentration. Yes. And uh, I think they played golf for different reasons. Arnie played golf mm-hmm. because he just loved it. He just loved it. And that's why every day. When I was with him for 10 years at Bay Hill, every day he's on the range or on the shootout or whatever. Um, I think he played golf because he simply loved to play. Jack, I think, Mm -hmm. was drawn to golf because of his competitiveness. Jack wanted to win. He wanted to win majors. Um, And once once he ceased to be competitive, then he didn't play very much. Um, right. Except on the, uh, the father son and things like that, but uh, they they just they they just felt differently about the game. Um, boards in the book. One was done by Jack, and one was by yeah. uh, Arnold Palmer's personal assistant, Doc Giffen. Doc um, Giffen. Share just yeah. a little bit. I mean, you don't have to. Yeah. Um, share a little bit of of what each of them uh, had to say. Well. Jack just blew me away because he was very flattering uh, to me. Uh, my work on the captain's club at Muirfield Village, our closeness uh, over the years, the deals we did together, um, and he was extremely gracious in in saying that uh, there was no question in his mind that the one person who knew Arnie and Jack best was, uh, was me. Um, mm-hmm. With Doc... Doc was very gracious in his forward as well, 
and he pointed out how well he and I got to know one another when I spent uh, 10 years with Arnie at Bay Hill, and Doc was there a lot. And uh, he uh, he pointed out that he uh, felt strongly that I had properly um, represented the two guys and felt that, uh, that my closeness to them mirrored his closeness to Arnie. So... Uh, I think those are kind of the best summary I can give, but you got to buy the book to read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give it all away. I just wanted to pull a little bit out of it. Matt, uh, share some. What were some of the other um, more memorable moments that you had? I mean, I, you said there was many, so I mean, it's hard to choose. But um, personal, you know, that obviously that you you shared. I mean, I'm not looking for something that that ultra personal, but what were some of the other memories and memorable moments well, one of my um, that occurred along the way? One of my most vivid memories was uh, I got a call one day from uh, three guys representing the USGA. Fred Ridley, who's now chairman of Augusta, was one of them. I think Buzz Taylor was head of uh, USGA, and uh, it might have been David Fay. I'm not sure. But they said they wanted to come see Arnie. And so... uh, I talked to him about it. He said, sure, invite him down. He said, I want you to sit in and hear what they have to say. So they came in, and uh, they didn't beat around the bush. Fred Ridley, as I recall, was a spokesman, and he said, uh, Arnold, uh, we have decided we want to name the USGA Museum for you. Arnie was literally speechless. Tears ran down his eyes, and he said, down his cheeks, and he said, I just, this is the line I remember, I just feel like I won another Open. <laughs> I've never, I've never <laughs> forgot that line. Uh, he was so overcome with, uh, with Jack. Let's see. Oh, I know the, my most, one of my vivid memories is my old company, Tap Broadcasting, did the, uh, the video of Golf My Way, which you'll remember, I think, is mm-hmm. uh, oh, yes. a wonderfully good, strong video. Most people think the best ever made. And uh, mm-hmm. when we finished it, we had a meeting in New York City, I remember, in which we uh, met to decide how we were going to market the video. And we uh, we needed to talk about pricing. Hang on a minute. I think my wife's calling her just a minute. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, honey, I'll uh, – we're uh, – we're winding down here. I've got a, probably another five or ten minutes, and then I'll be in. Yep. I'm, I'm on the call with the guy. I'll be in shortly. <laughs> All right, I'm on with uh, with Charlie Meacham, and uh, obviously he's getting permission to stay with me for a few more minutes. So we'll wait for him to come back and share the story. And we got to the, the, the issue of pricing, and at that time, most golf videos were selling for around thirty or forty bucks. And so we talked about that, and Jack said, "No, no." He said, uh, "My experience is when you uh, price anything, if you price it low, people will think it's not all that good. If you mm-hmm. so, let's price this." Because this is the best video ever made. Let's price it accordingly. And we ended up pricing it, if I remember, just under $100. 
and it's so mm-hmm. like hotcakes. But I remember <laughs> that served me well in the rest of my life that uh, if you price something below its real value, people are going to assume it's not worth much and vice versa. And I always rem- will remember that. Very good advice. And yep. it was definitely a great, uh, a great video um, for sure, sure a lot of great information there. I know that you do have to go, but before I let you go, I do want to give you an opportunity because I understand um, that in addition to the book itself that is still available, that there is now, I believe, an audio version as well that's now available or yeah, coming we're, soon. we're going to release the audio version in, in a couple of weeks, certainly within some time in the month of March. I did the entire narration, or not quite the narration. I was too embarrassed to read the two uh, the, the two forwards that were so complimentary to me, so I had somebody else do that. But I narrate the whole thing, and uh, I hope people will enjoy it. I, I, I love doing it, and uh, the uh, we're, we're anxious to get it out here within the next month, and I I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to mention to you and your, your audience that we're doing that. So Perfect. And where can they get currently right now, where can they still get the uh, the hard copy version of Arnie and Jack? Uh, is you it available either, on Amazon? You can either get it on Amazon or on my website, just charliemeacham.com. Either way. Okay. Perfect. And the, the well, book Charlie, has wanna... sold uh, quite well. People seem to really enjoy it. And I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to to tell the stories that many of these stories nobody else has ever told because nobody knew what they were. I do. And so uh, a lot of these stories have never been told before. People seem to really, book's been out now, but I guess about six months, and people seem to love it. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, expose where people can get it. And thank you so much. You've been so kind, and your interviews are superb because you, you do your homework. And thank you for that. Well, thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Charlie, I look forward to having you come back and join me on another show. I know I love having you on and uh, just a lot of great information, great uh, stories that you share, but uh, much continued success with Arnie and Jack. And I will definitely keep my audience posted for when the uh, 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 audio version comes out uh, in the next uh, month or so. Uh, I'll keep them posted. But thank you very much for joining me tonight. And I'm going to let you go because I don't want to get your wife mad at me. It it is uh, is my genuine (laughs) pleasure, and I'd love to be on again. All right. Charlie, thank you. Have a great evening. And and thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was Charlie Meacham, uh, former LPJ commissioner and author of Arnie and Jack. Uh, As uh, I'm sure most of you heard, he was uh, being paged and uh, had to to leave uh, a little earlier than normal, but that's okay. Uh, Certainly got some interesting stories in, and uh, we'll definitely have him come back on again. But if you want to get a copy of the book, uh, definitely go to Charlie Meacham. Uh, dot com and it's uh, Charlie and the last name is M E C H E M dot com and uh, or you can go to Amazon dot com and just type in Arnie and Jack or you can put his name and it'll come up and I will keep the audience posted when the audio version audiobook version becomes available uh, my understanding as as Charlie pointed out it's going to be sometime a little bit later this month but I will uh, keep on top of it <clears throat> excuse me and then once uh, once it is available I will uh, provide the uh, information on where you can go and get it. I would imagine it's probably going to be available through uh, Kindle and some of the other uh, top platforms. But on that note, we're going to end uh, just a little bit earlier tonight. Uh, and uh, I want to, again, thank uh, John Decker for uh, helping me springboard the uh, Coach's Corner segment earlier this evening. Thank you. And again, 
uh, our best to Jamie. Hopefully she'll be feeling a little bit better and be able to join us on the next time. And once again, uh, special thanks to tonight's guest, the author of Arnie and Jack, Mr. Charlie Meacham. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this segment. I will be back next week with another show, another great uh, Coach's Corner segment, and another insightful interview guest with my special guest of the evening. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel, and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.